entitled this message home that's what we're looking at here in psalms 15 and 16 and so i kind of want you to think for just a moment in your own minds what you think of when you think of home you know for me the first time i hear that word home i think about where i grew up in Robstown, Texas, and that same home that I lived in for those 18 years. But, you know, as I moved off to school and went to AM Galveston for a couple of years, and then what happened is when I came home to Robstown, it wasn't as much of my home as it was before. And as I moved to College Station, and then Brandon and I, gradu- Brandon and I graduated, got married, and moved to Houston for a few years, and then moved out here, what I found is every home in this life is temporary. That every home in this life, it changes. And even you may go to a certain church home for a season, then you move to another church home. And, and kind of this world wants to tell us that this home is forever. And even when you adopt pets, I don't know if you've ever done this, and they say, well, the pet's now in their forever home. Well, pets don't live forever. <laughs> and so it's not the forever home. So we understand that every home that we have in this life is temporary, but there's something nostalgic about home. There's something we're longing for. And that home that we're longing for is heaven. That's really what I'm going to focus on today is what we're going to see that in Psalms 15 and 16 is that there's an ache in our heart. There's a desire to be truly home. And we're going to see and be reminded of if heaven is that home that we're looking for. So with this in mind, let's jump into Psalm 15. I'm going to read through it all at once and then we'll go through it verse by verse. David writes, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, we don't exactly know the circumstances surrounding David writing this psalm. There's some idea that maybe it was when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. We're just not really sure. Uh, So that doesn't really matter. We're not going to concern ourselves with that. But I really believe this first verse is that focal point as we kind of think about home. Notice David says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? So he's addressing the Lord. He's addressing Yahweh. And he's saying, who may abide in your tabernacle? Now, it's it's interesting that word abide actually can be translated sojourn. Now, it's interesting as I go through the first five books of the Old Testament with my seventh graders in our BSM class at school, that word sojourn comes up quite a bit and the kids kind of struggle through it and they don't really think about what it means. And I try to help them to see that there's that word journ in there, which we might think of as journey. So a sojourn is one who journeys. So it's interesting that this word abide, who may abide in your tabernacle, it's really could be used for a foreigner who comes to dwell in a land that's not his own. He comes from a different place and he comes to dwell in a land that's not his own. Well, and then what's the tabernacle here? Well, if you remember from the Old Testament, you know, the children of Israel, they leave Egypt, they're at Mount Sinai, they receive the law through Moses, and then God tells them to build this tabernacle. And essentially what it is, it's, it's this area that's a rectangle with tent, oh, I'm sorry, with, with curtains, and then inside there, there's a tent. And that tent, you know, that's a place for me, if the priests can meet with the Lord. 
And there's different elements in there. And there's the Ark of the Covenant for the Day of Atonement. And there's a brazen altar outside. There's all these different elements so that the children of Israel can have a way of interacting with their God. All of it pointing toward the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so David's asking this question, this person who's a foreigner, who comes from a different land, who's alien to you, how can they spend time with you? How can they come to your tabernacle? And then he says something that's similar, along those similar lines, the second part of verse one, he says, who may dwell in your holy hill? Now this word dwell is interesting, abide, sojourn, foreigner coming to a different land. But the word dwell here in the second part of verse one actually means to settle down permanently. So you put this imagery together. How can a person from another land who moves over, who's used to sojourning, how can they settle down permanently? How can they live with you forever? And this holy hill here could speak of Mount Zion, of course, there in Jerusalem. But we can also take it as more. We can take this tabernacle as thinking about heaven and the holy hill as heaven. And so the big picture here, as we look through these verses, and what I want to expand on is how can a person live in right relationship with God? Not only now, but forever. Now, it's important if you are going to you know, learn something, a subject or something of that nature, that you understand the foundational elements. So I remember being in second grade and having to learn my, my, uh, the uh, times tables. And I remember my mom quizzing me on those. And I remember my evil second grade teacher, Mrs. Trigg. Don't worry, she's been dead for years. Uh, she won't hear this. And so, you know, she was just wanting to quiz me on these things. And I didn't want to learn the multiplication tables. I didn't see why I needed those. But if I didn't learn those, I wasn't going to be able to do any math beyond that. Well, sometimes in Christianity, we don't learn our times tables. We don't learn those foundational truths. And so what happens is we just kind of wander around similar to the children of Israel out in the wilderness, not really knowing where we're going, but just waiting to die and go be with the Lord. But this is a foundational element here, and I want to give it to you. There's a catechism, I forget which one it is, and it asks, what is the chief end of man? And it says it this way, it's to know God and enjoy him forever. That's the times table of the Christian life. You see, if we realize what is my goal in life? Why was I created? What's my identity? It's to know God and enjoy him forever. If that's our foundation, if that's where we begin, now we can build upon it. But if we think about, well, my, my goal as a Christian is to live as long as possible. Or my goal as a Christian is to make a bunch of money. Or my goal as a Christian is for people to appreciate me. Our goal as a Christian is this, then we're going to be lost what do you say? Okay, my goal as a believer, why God has created me, is God has created me to know him and enjoy him forever. Now things are going to be brought into perspective. You see, this imagery that we have here in Psalm 15 is of these foreigners settling down at the Lord's tabernacle. Because if we're honest, the Jews themselves were still foreigners to God. Every person is born into this world as a foreigner to God, as someone who's dead in their trespasses and sins and has to be brought near. God, through his grace and his mercy, needs to bring us near. So as we begin to think about these things, think about going home to our heavenly home, I want to have us turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So would you turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment? Well, that's, that's a pastor lie there. It will be more than a moment. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 2. And, and what we're going to do here is we're going to kind of think about this idea 
of what does it look like to be brought near to God? What does it look like to abide in his tabernacle, to dwell on his holy hill? How does that happen? How does it work? I think Ephesians chapter two is one of those places. Now, depending on your perspective, this may be a bad habit or a good habit that I'm getting into. I find it difficult as we go to these different places to find out where to break the chapter. So I just like, well, let's go through the whole chapter. So we're gonna go real quickly, fairly quickly through Ephesians chapter two. But here's the deal. I want you... I want me to realize that we come into this world as aliens to God, as strangers to him. And yet he's brought us near. He has given us a heavenly home and that is our inheritance. That's where we're going. You see, Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus who were Gentiles who had become believers. So this is just written to us as well because we were in that same situation. So notice how Paul begins, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in what you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul begins, and he says here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, essentially this. Guys, everybody comes into this world at enmity with God. Enemies of God, sinners. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead in the Bible speaks of separation. So he says we come into this world separated from God. And then he's, he says it's for you Gentiles, but also it's us Jews. That everybody, every person comes into this world in this place, going along with Satan's way because of our fallen nature, because of the spiritual forces that are warring against us. That's just the situation. And you know what? If we're left to that situation, we're never going to find our true home. If we're left in that situation, we're never going to find the Lord. But then here come these two huge words at the beginning of verse four, but God. He says, you guys, and he doesn't say you guys only. He says, all of us dead in our trespasses and sins, doing our own thing, buffeted about by Satan, led according to our own flesh, but God, and then here it is, who is rich in mercy. Please take that to heart. When you need more mercy from God, realize that God's not Ebenezer Scrooge. God's not poor in mercy. God's not like, oh man, I gotta give you mercy again. I'm kind of down to the end. It says, God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice it wasn't because of our loveliness. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were doing our own thing. But God, who's rich in mercy, he's the one who loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show, here it is again, the exceeding riches. So we had riches, rich in mercy. Now we have exceeding riches of grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So please understand the juxtaposition. Paul was writing to Ephesians who literally were in the city of Ephesus. And yet he says to them, right now, guys, you have already, past tense, been raised up together with Christ. And then in the future, God is going to physically bring you there, and he's going to show the riches, exceeding riches of his grace to you for all eternity. So though you are seated here right now, if you are a born-again believer, spiritually speaking, you're seated in heaven. He has made you to sit there. It's a done deal from his perspective. And then here we get to Ephesians uh, 2, 8 through 10. 
8 and 9 tells us about our salvation. And then verse, tells, verse 10 tells us how to walk it out. Notice, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there it is. If you're a born-again believer, your salvation has been all of God. It's God calling you. It's God making you born again by as you place your faith in him. It's his grace. It's his mercy. But then verse 10 tells us how we're to walk that out, how we're to live it out. Notice, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a very important point for when we go back to Psalm 15 in just a moment, is that we don't work for our salvation, we work from our salvation. When I, when I was going to school at Texas A&M, I started behaving a certain way in certain traditions and saying howdy to people, not because I was trying to make myself a student, but because that's how students behaved. That if you were a student at Texas A&M, this is just how you did life. And so for us, Ephesians 2.10 is not how you can work your salvation, like I'm going to be saved by this. No, you start behaving a certain way because you already are saved. Now, continuing on, he says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called a circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, to here it is, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope when without God in the world. So here's what David is talking about. Those people who want to abide in the tabernacle but are foreigners who are strangers. He says, that was you, but notice verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, so we were those strangers, those foreigners, and God brought us near. And notice verse 14, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one. In other words, made Jews and Gentiles one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. In other words, to Gentiles and to the Jews. He says, for through him... We both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. You see, this whole idea here, when, when David asks, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? The person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, that's who. And then as we look at this and kind of all the verbiage about identity in this culture, and we kind of think about it in the extreme and, oh man, all this kind of strange things, but how much so for us? How many times after a Sunday service have I sought my identity in what people thought of the sermon? Or how often have I gone home and thought, well, I'm going to find my identity in what my wife thinks about me or in what my kids think about me. Or I'm going to find my identity in the car that I drive or in the place that I work and all these kind of things. And there's all of this. But if we're, we're, we just come down to the base of it, what's my identity? My identity is, is I am a citizen of heaven. That I'm a person who's in Christ. And then when that's the reality, that's the truth. That's not something that we make up or think about it. That's the reality for the born again believer. And as we walk in that reality as we walk in that true legitimate identity, 
then all these other things that we can walk them out. We can handle them. But if we're constantly wandering around asking someone else to give us an identity, asking a circumstance to give us an identity, we're never going to find it. But if we come to Christ, he says, come on in. Your old identity was you were a stranger, you were a foreigner, you were separated from me, but I've adopted you into my family. I've made you a citizen of heaven and you are found in me always. All right, if you would, please turn back now to Psalm 15. And as we turn and continue on in Psalm 15, it's very important that for us as New Covenant believers that we read the Old Testament scriptures with a New Covenant understanding. And what I, what I mean by that, as we look at verses 2 through 5, we can view this as, uh-oh, here's a checklist of things I must do for God to let me into heaven. And again, that's why I wanted to have you go through Ephesians chapter 2 with me, because that's backwards. The things that we read about in verses 2 through 5 are the things that we're walking out. They're Ephesians 2.10 type of things. We're walking those out because we are believers. That this is what we've been called to. So these characteristics of one who may abide or dwell in God's tabernacle or holy hill, for us as new covenant believers, they're walking out what God works in. God will empower you by his Holy Spirit to do the things he asks you to do in the scriptures. And he does that, again, because that's what it looks like to be a believer. You're not working for your salvation. You're working from your salvation. So I'll remind you one more time of Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we move into verse 2, then we see things of, of what to do. So as a new covenant believer, this is how I should walk. Notice, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. So we have, what are the words? Walks, works, and speaks. And what I just take from that is that all of our life should be brought under submission to Christ. Just all of our life. Not just our work life or home life or school life, but all of our life. Everything we say and do uh, should be in him. We should walk in integrity. We should work rightly. We should speak truthfully. And I love the exhortation the Apostle John gives in 1 John 1, 6. It says, he who says he abides in Jesus ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Right? And, and we can understand this. I was watching the Green Bay Packers, or last night the Green Bay Slackers was more like it, is, is how they played. I was watching them, and I was watching all these grown people, you know, out there at the stadium. And it's, you know, windshield of zero, and they are, you know, let's say there's lots of guys in their 50s and they're all wearing jerseys of 20 and 30 year olds, right? They're identifying. There's something about those players on the field that they say, I want to identify with him. I want to be like him. There's something about him that I admire, that I appreciate. So it's not a big mystery to say, well, if Jesus Christ is the one who I most admire in this life. And he actually gives me the power to do what he calls me to do. Well, I just want to walk like him. So we walk like him because we already are children of God, not walking like him because we're trying to become children of God. Please understand the Christian life is not fake it till you make it. It's not what it is. It's, it's, it's saying I have been born again by the spirit. God has given me all things that pertain to life and godliness. So I'm going to walk those things out because as I walk those things out, that pleases God. But also as I walk things out, that's actually my highest good. That's the best thing for me. All right, so that's what to do. Let's look at verse three. This is what not to do. In verse three, it says, he who does not backbite with his tongue 
nor does he evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Okay, so this is what not to do. And the first one is backbiting, and that speaks of gossip or slander or unrighteous criticism. And this is really a big problem for all of us because it's one of those things in the Christian life that we actually seem like we're doing a favor for people. That when we're, you know, it's like, um, it was kind of, we treat ourselves like we're a public service announcement, like we're a living Yelp review. Let, let me tell you about this person so you're not caught up in what they're doing. But, but I want to turn you to a place to help us remind ourselves of, of kind of how we should talk about other people. So would you turn to Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment? Matthew 7, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount here. And um, Jesus is going to talk about this. So as we, as we seek to not be backbiters, okay, not to be gossips, slanderers, John, Matthew 7 gives us, a great, um, gives us some great insights. Here's what Jesus says. Familiar passage, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own, your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay. Now, not often in life do we get to be judged by the standard we choose. Okay. Um, I used to run track in junior high and high school, not because I loved it, because my dad made me. And so I hated running track. And one of the things that I hated, even though I tried at it, was there was a little thing called a stopwatch. And that stopwatch told me how fast, or in my case, how slow I was. <laughs> I didn't get to determine the standard. There was a standard. They started that stopwatch when the gun went off. And then when I finally made it across the finish line, they stopped it again and they showed it to me. Okay. So that was a standard that's outside of myself. But what Jesus is saying here in John, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, verse 2, notice is he says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. What measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. He's actually saying, I'm letting you choose the standard of judgment. That if, if you talk bad about people and you're super critical of them and you tear them to shreds, then Jesus says, that's the judgment I'm going to use to you. But if you treat people mercifully and graciously and you be, believe the best about you, people, that's the, the judgment I'm going to use against you. And so I don't know about you, but I think if, when I'm in my right mind, I think I want as easy a judgment as possible. <laughs> I want as easy a measure as possible. So why don't I just treat people kindly and say good things about them and, and not gossip and slander and unrighteously criticize so that I, that standard might be used uh, for me. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 15 and we'll continue on. And he says here, nor does evil to his neighbor. That's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of this talked about in the scriptures. You know, the scripture, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting about that, and it's kind of a little tidbit because we're going through Leviticus right now in my seventh grade class, is the command to love your neighbor as yourself is actually from the book of Leviticus. And I just mentioned that because we have a tendency, if we kind of do a Bible reading plan and get to Leviticus, we're like... Leviticus, cutting up of animals and all this kind of stuff. Why should I read this thing and all these laws? And, but just, just read through it. You never know what you're going to find. And so there in the book of Leviticus is love your neighbor as yourself. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus gave the, the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Then he said things like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So we understand that as a believer, we're to love our neighbor. Now, continues on, he says, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In other words, he doesn't listen to gossip or join in with gossip about his friend. Verse four, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Now, that's a hard one. We look at this and say, well, how can I, I, I love my enemies and yet despise a vile person? What's it talking about here? Well, this word despise means to hold in contempt. And so I think the, I'm going to give you a couple of verses that, that help us kind of make some sense of this. One of them is Proverbs 8.13, which says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So here's what I get from this. We live in a fallen world system. Talked about that, right? Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Fallen world system. Satan is referred to as the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, all of those things. So we live in a society that is perverted. We live in a society where wickedness and vileness is exalted. We live in a time in human history where perversion is taught as the highest good. That's where we are. And so there's a tendency for us, even as believers, to begin to envy the wicked. Those who have great power and authority and financial wealth. And we just say, "Mm, I know they kind of cut corners to do things. I know they did things wrong, but I really want what they have. So I'm going to do that. The scriptures is telling us to despise that lifestyle to despise that attitude, to despise that end. You know, if, if that's something that you struggle with from time to time, then I would encourage you to think about Psalm 73 and read Psalm 73. In it, Asaph is struggling with the same thing. He's basically saying the rich, pro- I mean, the, the wicked prosper, they get away with everything, and he's really upset. And he says he almost slipped until he went to the tabernacle of the Lord, until he went and saw God's house. And then he realized it's actually they who are gonna slip. They're prosperous for a little while, but then they'll fall. And so what's going to happen, though, the the believer gets to go to their heavenly home. They get to be with him forever. And so it's important for us to not exalt the wicked. It's important for us to not look at the vile as, oh, this, this is the ideal. And one of the things that we can do that's real practical is I would encourage you to, to read about Christian men and women of the past to read their biographies, read how they did life, to get some new heroes. Because the heroes that this world offers us, by and large, are vile people. And so we need to get our eyes onto someone else, someone who is worthy of imitation. All right, continuing on here, he says, but he honors those who fear the Lord. And, And so the person who's walking rightly in the Lord treats fellow believers with respect. And then it says, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And so the believer um, is the, the true believer. The, so let me say this. The faithful believer is the one who chooses to stay committed to t- keep his word even when circumstances get difficult. Any of us can say we're going to do things when it's easy. The sun is shining and everything's good and we have money in our pocket and we're going to do this thing. And then when times get hard, we're like, I really want to back out of this commitment. I want to back out of this thing. And so the the faithful believer is the one who, even though his commitment brings trouble upon himself, refuses to quit on it. Verse five, he who 
does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Okay, so the faithful believer, please hear me, uses money as a tool and not as a weapon. The faithful believer uses money as a tool, but not as a weapon. Now, the people who are the richest and most powerful in this world, okay, like we just think about the top, they have used money as a weapon along the way. <laughs> they've bludgeoned people. They, they've taken advantage of people. They've destroyed their enemies along the way. You can't make it to the top of this world system without getting your hands dirty. But the, the fact is, believers, there can be wealthy believers who use their money as a tool. Now, they're never going to get to the top in this system. They're never going to make it that far. But they use their money in such a way that actually brings life. That, that helps people, that, that expands Christ's kingdom here on this world. And so it's important for us to look at this because we think, man, I just, if only I just had enough money. If only I had more money, then things would work out. But, you know, instead of looking at it that way, just say, you know what? Whatever money I do have, and all of y'all have money to some extent because y'all made it here today. Take some money to get here is to say, let me just use my money as a tool. The God's given me, I'm going to use it wisely. I'm not going to bludgeon people with it. Now, last part here of verse five now, it says, he who does these things shall never be moved. So in context of what David was talking about, speaking about never being moved from his place as a guest and resident in Yahweh's tent and on his holy hill, there in that place. Now, again, for us as new covenant believers, it's important that we look, not look at the end of verse 5 and say, well, there it is. I know that all that Steve told me, but if I don't do all these things in verses 2 through 5 correctly, God's going to kick me out of heaven. I'm going to lose my spot. I'm going to lose my place. I've, if that's how you're feeling today, I would encourage you to go home today, listen to this study from the beginning again <laughs> so you can hear the truth. But I want to give you encouragement. I want to give you encouragement that if you're a born-again believer, it's guaranteed Okay, absolutely guaranteed that when you die, you'll go be, you'll be in heaven, in your heavenly home. And I'll give you these verses. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So uh, first service, I had said it was Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, but it's actually Philippians 3, 20 through 21. And so it's, Paul's reminding us again, our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, we are citizens of heaven. We eagerly wait for the Savior. And then it says that Jesus not might transform our lowly body, but he says he will. It's a guarantee. He will transform these lowly bodies, these failing bodies into his glorious body. And then it says at the end of that verse that he, according to his working, which he is able, here it is, even to subdue all things to himself. Okay, we look around at this world. Let's just be honest. It's a mess. It's just a mess. It's a mess economically, it's a mess socially, it's a mess politically, it's a mess, you know, health-wise. It's a mess in every different way. But it's, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is going to subdue not, not most things, not many things, but all things to himself. So you and I can take a break today. You and I can actually sit on a couch and relax because Jesus has given us our citizenship that, that he is going to transform these lowly bodies and he's going to subdue all things to himself. 
There's enough there to bring great encouragement. All right, Psalm 16, we'll move through this psalm quickly. It's a mictum of David. Um, if anybody tells you that they know what a mictum means, they're lying to you. Because <laughs> I've read about it and there's all kinds of debate. Nobody really knows what mictum means. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, so here we are, we're working our way up in this scripture, in this psalm to that heavenly home again. And so I want to move through this. Verse one, he says, you'll preserve me, right? You'll preserve me, O God. Oh, sorry, he's asking, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. That word preserve there means to keep or to watch over. That word trust speaks of seeking refuge or fleeing for protection. And so as we kind of think about this and we think about David's mindset as he's worried, he's fearful in this moment, it's likely that you and I have experienced a lot of worry and anxiety over the last few years. You know, and, and, and maybe that this last few years has magnified it, but it's likely that we've experienced a lot of fear and worry and anxiety over all of our lives. And, and as I was kind of thinking about this thing as a person who struggles with fear and anxiety, then I really kind of came solidified in my mind that it ultimately comes down to this. It's God's agenda versus our agenda. This is where worry and fear comes from. My worry and fear comes from, I'm afraid that my agenda is not the same as God's agenda. That God is unwilling to do things my way. I'm worried that my agenda and God's agenda might not line up. And so as I began to think about that, what came to mind was Matthew chapter 6. So would you turn to Matthew chapter 6, please? I won't even say for a moment. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 6, again the Sermon on the Mount, as we seek to examine this age-old problem that we have, even as believers, of these warring agendas. God's agenda versus our agenda. And then how do we reconcile the two? How do we work this out? I believe that the answer is given to us here in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Now, as you're turning there, this section of Scripture, and especially the, the last two verses, those are the first verses I ever memorized. First verses I ever memorized when I was going to school at Texas A&M, and it's, they, this, Texas A&M needs a sponsor this message today, as I've said their name so often. Um, but, but as I was going to school there, and as I've wrestled with these verses all these years, but guess what? They've never been changed. These verses haven't changed. God hasn't vetoed them. They haven't been taken out of the scriptures. It hasn't ever said, well, Steve, you can just do something different because you're having such a hard time lining up with these verses. No, they're still here. And so again, in context is God's agenda versus our agenda. Verse 25, Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. It's command. 
This is what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you of you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Okay. So as we get into verses 33 and 34, last verses of this chapter, here we come to it, to that question. Is it God's agenda or is it my agenda? Is God willing to line up things to fit with what I want and what I think and how I would like things to go? And we have the answer, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here's the bad news. God says, you're gonna have to get your agenda out of here. (laughs) So what he says, he doesn't say, do your thing. And if you have some time left over, if you kind of might want to do my thing, he doesn't say that. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, do my agenda and throw your agenda away. You see, that's again, it's back to Ephesians 2. When we were unbelievers, we were doing our agenda. We were really doing Satan's agenda. But God says, no. Do my agenda. But what happens when we line up with God's agenda? What happens when we throw our agenda away and we submit to his? All of a sudden he says, you don't have to worry now. You don't have to fear now because we're on the same page. Because you're going to be doing what I want you to do. And I'm going to be providing for you along the way. And guess what? My agenda is the best. God can't sin. God can't err. God can't make one single wrong step. So he just says, why don't you just lay it all down and just do things my way? And if you do, you're going to find incredible peace there. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 16 as we move into verse 2. David says here, he says, Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. So his, his soul says to the Lord, hey, you're my Lord. In other words, you're my master. You're my boss. And then this phrase where he says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. It could be translated, there's no goodness apart from you. In other words, I can't do any good thing apart from you. That, that if, any, if I do anything good, it actually has to come by your empowering. Verse 3 As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones and whom is all my delight. Same thing we saw in the last chapter about just David delighting fellow believers. That should be our attitude. Now, fellow believers are sinners just like we are. So if we spend enough time together, we're going to get sideways with each other. We're going to get frustrated with each other. That's going to happen. But as we do spend time and get to know each other and become friends with each other, then we're going to, I think, delight in one another. Verse 4 Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. They drink their drink offerings of blood. I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. And so he's basically saying, I'm not going to follow after the false gods. 
And why is he not going to follow after false gods? Well, first of all, because it's dishonoring to the Lord. But also notice what he says in verse 4. Their sorrow shall be multiplied. In other words, following after false gods only makes life worse. Satan wants to tell us that if you go and sin it up, that's where life is found. Paul tells us in Romans, that's actually bondage. And I would, I would challenge anybody who just to look up famous people who give themselves completely over to their sin and just, just ask yourself, does that look like a happy life? Does that look like a joyful life? Divorces and you know, drug abuse and all kinds of immorality and, and law problems and all of those things. Is, is that good? No. But, but for us, we look at that and say, of course, I'm not going to offer blood offerings. <laughs> and that's not what I do. But it's good for us, even as born-again believers, to take inventory and say, what false God am I worshiping? What false God have I let in? Is it the false God of success? Is it the false God of comfort? Is it the false God of security? The false God of pleasure? Or whatever the case may be, it's very easy for us to begin to worship those false gods and take ourselves off track. Verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. Now, this portion and cup, it speaks of really outward circumstances, inward experiences, and this idea, you know, that, that God is involved in all of that, okay, that, that, that God is the one who's providing for David. But what I really want to focus on here from verse 5 is where he says, you maintain my lot, or that word maintain could be translated uphold. And lot speaks of what, what David is going to receive. It, it speaks of what God has promised David, what David is going to inherit. So what he's saying here is, Lord, whatever you've promised to me, you're going to give to me. Whatever you have promised to me, I can trust you that you're going to give it to me. And this is a fundamental issue because this ties back to our agenda versus God's agenda. And it's simply this. The question to ask ourselves out of verse 5 is, does God maintain our lot? Or must we maintain our lots? Is God the one who's holding on to what he wants to give to us? Or is it up to me to hold on to what he's given to us? Because I'll tell you what, if it's up to me to hold on to things, I make a ton of bad decisions. I make a lot of wrong moves. So if I'm the one holding on to it, man, just can I give it to you, Lord? Because I'm going to lose this. I'm going to burn this. I'm going to destroy this. And so, so there's a wonderful place I want to have you turn. Last time I'm going to have you turn to the New Testament today. Most likely. Second uh, Timothy. Let's turn to Second Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to see what Paul has to say about this issue. Second Timothy chapter 1. As you turn there to Second Timothy, please understand that, Timothy, I'm sorry, that Paul is writing this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, from the Mamertine prison in Rome. So Paul had been imprisoned and then released and then was arrested again. He's now awaiting execution as an enemy of the state. And so he's writing this letter and he's going to talk about God maintaining his lot. And so he's in a horrible condition from our standpoint. He's in a place about to be executed. He's cold. He's alone. It's horrible living conditions. But this is what he writes. Starting in verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but has now revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Now, before I get to the payoff of verse 12, I just want to remind you of some things here. Notice it was God's agenda, right? He says it was, it was God who saved us. It was God who called us. It, it was, was God who, who saved us by grace and not by our works. It was God's purpose before time began. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he says that God called me. He appointed me. God's agenda as a preacher, an apostle, a teacher. And so because of all that, he trusted that God could maintain his lot. Here it is, verse 12. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Here it is. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now, there's something that's easy to overlook here. He just doesn't say, I know what I've believed. He says, I know whom I have believed. So often yours and my faith is flat because it's just a faith in a, in a bunch of ideas or principles, or facts, or words on a page. But at its heart, Christianity is not merely a list of doctrinal beliefs. It is belief in a person, the person Jesus Christ, who lived and died for us. And so Paul could say in that prison, in that state, it's not, I know what I have believed. Here's my list of credentials. No, he says, I know whom I have believed. And that person whom I believed, who died for me, who appointed me, is with me now, and he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Please understand, believer, that Jesus Christ is able to hold on to your lot. He's able to maintain it. He is able to keep it until that day. And when you go home to be with him, you're going to enjoy that forever. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 16, verse 6. He says, David writes, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. You and I, as believers, can memorize and say this prayer. We can recite this verse, I should say. The Lord is our inheritance. He has given us a good inheritance. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 4, that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You and I, as believers, have an inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. doesn't fade away. And it's reserved. Right? Today, I don't know how it is. I hope it just has like a really cool nameplate on it. <laughs> There's your reward with your name on it waiting for you. Verse seven, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. So he blesses the Lord for the counsel, for the guidance he gives. So when you read the word of God, thank God for the counsel he gives, for the guidance he gives you. And then I love how he says, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. In other words, a heart that is filled with the word of God will give you good counsel. A heart that's just filled with self will not give you good counsel. But the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As you and I fill the, our hearts with the word of God, they'll give us good counsel in those night seasons, in those dark times. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I love the imagery here that the Lord was in front of him, but the Lord was also beside him. And that's how the Lord can do things because the Lord is omnipresent but I love this. It's this idea of David was both following the Lord and depending on the Lord, uh, going after the Lord and yet leaning on the Lord. A beautiful, beautiful picture here. And we see what happens 
as we follow the Lord and depend on the Lord, it leads us into verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Following and depending on the Lord makes the heart glad. Following and depending on self, it leads to misery. Trying to figure it out ourselves. And if only I just do this, and if only I make this right decision, if only turn here and not set up there, it just leads to despair. But if we follow and depend on the Lord, it makes the heart glad. And then David says that he has hope in his flesh. That he, and, and so there's, David has kind of this shadowy idea of the resurrection. He's going to read about that in the book of Job and kind of other places in the Old Testament that he has this kind of shadowy understanding. Now, if your understanding of the resurrection is shadowy, I would encourage you, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does a masterful job of explaining the, the resurrection body to us. Verse 10, he says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. David did not believe that his soul would be left in Sheol. That's the place of the dead, the grave, but that his soul would be taken to be with the Lord. And then David shifts gears here. He be, at the end of verse 10, he prophesies of the Messiah. Notice he says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So David there prophesies that the body of the Messiah would not experience corruption, that would not experience decomposition. We don't have time to turn there, and I've already promised to not have you turn any more places. So Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 33, if you're interested, you can read about that. Day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching the first sermon of the, the church age, and he uses this verse here to show that the, resur- that the Messiah would not be corrupted, that as he died, he would not suffer decomposition. Verse 11, here we go, last verse. You will show me the path of life. I love this. God will show the believer the path of life. And, and it's not just a path of life, it's who is the path of life, it's Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So if you want to know what the path of life is, it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Then finally, in your presence, there it is in heaven, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That word presence there, it means face. That when we see the face of God, the scripture tells us that in Jesus Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So somehow when we see Jesus Christ in his fullness, we'll be seeing the fullness of Godhead bodily. And as we see his face, then we're going to have fullness of joy. Not a little bit of joy, not that was cool, but fullness of joy to the uttermost. That word joy means mirth and gladness. You may not be much of a dancer now, but you're going to be a dancer then. When you see the Lord face to face, you are going to be the fullness of joy. And he says at your right hand, that's that place of honor, place of privilege. And guess what? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But if you read the scriptures, it says that Jesus has said to all believers, come up and sit on my throne. Come up and sit with me. So you and I are going to be there at the right hand of the Father. And what's going to be there is pleasures forevermore. It's going to be unending joy. Now, we have to stop here because I need to let you guys get lunch. But I want to close with a few verses from a familiar song. And it goes simply like this. The world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore.